It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Become Your Own Superhero, Mr. Tom Ziegler. Welcome to the show, Tom. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Laban, it's fantastic to be here. It's bright and early in uh, Plano, Texas. So how cool is it that we can have a conversation across the world? Well, we're, we're blessed to say at least, and I would be wearing my Stetson if I could fit my headphones over it, Tom, but it doesn't, unfortunately. So I'll just have to wear my cowboy boots. You'll have to imagine them. That sounds good. Yeah. You know, uh, Melbourne is, is one of my favorite cities in the world. The best cup of coffee I've ever had was in Melbourne, Australia. So uh, just just excited about the show and and let's get into it. Well, it's a great place to start. And, and I'll be I'll be very impressed if you can remember the name of the cafe, because there's a lot of really great coffee places in this wonderful town of Melbourne. But if you can't remember, I'll be very impressed. Well, actually, I can remember, uh, and it wasn't in a cafe. The, uh, we were having a big convention at the uh, convention center, and it's the hotel attached to the convention center. And I can't remember the name of it, but they have French presses in each of the hotel rooms, which I travel all over the world, and that's pretty unusual to have a French press in your hotel room. And so I think... It was the combination of a French press, great coffee, uh, 20 hours of travel, <laughs> and just sitting there in a beautiful city going, ha, oh, now this is, this is the way to recover from a, an overseas trip. It's, uh, I've not stayed there, but I live about a kilometer or 600 yards, whatever you want to call it, in your, in your metric. And the... That area is, I mean, it's a beautiful part of Melbourne. You know, for anyone watching or listening to this, Melbourne is constantly voted most livable city in the world. And uh, I'm, I'm not from here originally. I'm from New Zealand, but I've been here for 19 years in December. And and I and I can't get away from the place. So I, I totally empathise with you, Tom. It's, the coffee is extraordinary. And uh, now it's my only vice as well <laughs> since giving up everything else. And I can't bear the thought of knocking coffee on the head, but I suppose I'd love to start off with a little bit of obscurity, really. I saw um, an interview from a little while back that your father, Zig, encouraged the family to have lots of pets as a way to learn discipline and, and you know, responsibility. And I understand that you've passed it into your next generation of uh, at least one child I know that you have. 
and you've got a, a rabbit or a hare with the first name Facial. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, my uh, my daughter Alexandra, when she was a uh, senior in high school, uh, she wanted a rabbit, uh, and so we got her a bunny, and uh, I named him Facial, and uh, so that's what I would call him, and he was my facial hair, so kind of pun intended. Uh, facial is passed on to the, you know, across the great rainbow bridge to greener pastures. Uh, but I tell you what, for a couple of years, he lived in my office. You know, we had a little, uh, pen for him in my office and, uh, every, I would spend three hours every morning working and I would let him out. And, you know, I never thought I would get so attached to a rabbit, uh, <laughs> but, but I did. And, uh, you know, the plan was to give her, a, you know, she was going to take care of everything. Well, then she goes to college and, and becomes our responsibility. So there you go. There's the best <laughs> intentions. <laughs> well, big shout out to Facial up in the, up in the sky. <laughs> you served us well. And uh, I, from one thing I was really curious to know, Tom, the Ziggler name is such a distinctive name that whereabouts is Ziggler from? So Ziggler, and, you know, this is a little bit of family research. Uh, it's a German name, and it's generally spelled uh, differently than what we spell it. Uh, it's usually, we spell it Z-I-G-L-A-R, and almost always it's E-R, and sometimes there's an I in it, so it'll be like Ziegler, like Z-I-E-G-L-E-R, um, but when that, when I guess my great, great, great grandparents came across, they Americanized the name, which was very common, uh, to, you know, take whatever ethnic name you had and make it a little bit more, uh, Americanized. So that's how it was. And then dad, of course, uh, he was the 10th of 12 kids and his friends started calling him Zig because Zig Ziglar is just such an easy thing to say. And the name stuck with him. Uh, and then when he started his speaking career, there's probably not a better stage name than that. I mean, are there any other Zig Ziglars out there? No, there's not. Very easy to remember. It's actually a fun name to say. It's hard to say Zig Ziglar without a smile. Uh, and so it just, it just stuck, and that's what he went by. Well, thank you for sharing that, Tyler. And the, one of the challenges I had with, with regards to inviting you on the show is I I really didn't want to bring you on and then just make it all about your father. But I, one of the things I noticed about some of the material that I've seen with you, you are unashamedly proud of your father. And it's almost in your in your title of your business card or your you know your LinkedIn profile, whatever it might be. And I want to sort of explore some of the childhood experiences that you had, if, if we can, um, in a second. When you compare, say, for example, for me, growing up as a child of divorce, which I've been very open about, and the experiences that I've uh, had growing up that have really shaped me into the individual that I am here. From what I can tell and what I've read and what I've listened for the, the many hours of, of material from the Ziegler family, it sounds like by the time you guys were born, that it was a an incredibly functional 
environment to, to grow up. Is, is that the facade or is that actually how it worked out? Yeah, so let me give you some history. Um, so dad's, when he was five years old, his father passed away. So dad was the 10th of 12 kids and he was raised in Yazoo City, Mississippi. Uh, so if you know anything about the states, Mississippi is one of the poorest states. And it was during the Great Depression. And so dad was raised by a single mom uh, in one of the poorest states and one of the poorest little towns during the Great Depression. So he had, he had to start working when he was five. I'm sorry, when he was six. His dad died when he was five. He started working when he was six, selling peanuts on the corner. Uh, and I remember the last time I was in Australia, uh, I also was in Papua New Guinea. And we were driving through Port Moresby and uh, at the corner, this little boy runs up and he was about nine or 10 and he had a bunch of peanuts and he was selling them on the street corner. And I thought, wow, that's what my dad did at that age. You know, and it's like, and so you look at somebody in a, in a, in a place and you think, you know, golly, they're selling peanuts on a corner and a pretty in a place that's, you know, quite not quite as advanced, but yet the potential from that is to go anywhere, right? That that little boy can be anything, and it depends on, you know, and it, some of it's, you know, a lot of it is circumstances and who pours into you and the input that you, you know, that you receive. But another part of it, the biggest part, in my opinion, is the choice that you make. You know, when you come to that position of awareness that says, hey, regardless of what's happened to me, I can change my future by changing my choices. So that happened to dad and he didn't do well in school. Well, mom, when she was 10, she heard a gunshot in the other room and her daddy committed suicide. Wow. And so, you know, so both my parents had experienced this extreme uh, tra tragedy in the middle of the, you know, the most difficult time in the, in really in the world, as far as economics go. Um, and then they meet. So their mom was 16, dad was 18, uh, dad was in the Navy. So they met and they dated for a couple of years and, and got married. And today the world would say, you know, what are you doing? You've got two kids from, from pretty, devastating family backgrounds and they're getting married and they're only 18 and 20, you know, this will never work. Well, 66 years later, an amazing, you know, just an amazing legacy. That's how long they were married. Um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't a smooth road, you know, not at all. Um, when dad got out of the Navy and he started working and he was selling uh, door to door, his mentor came to him at, at an event that the dad was attending. He'd been doing it for two and a half years. And he said, this is at a break. Um, he said, Zig, you could be a champion if you only believed in yourself and went to work on a regular schedule. And he'd never had anybody in that position of authority tell him that. And so that was the day that he decided to really dive into what does it mean to believe in yourself. What does it mean to go to work on a regular schedule? So that year he finished number two out of 7,000 salespeople. 
Wow. And in the previous two and a half years, he was never in the top 5,000. And so right there, uh, that tells you about what the choice is, right? That tells you that regardless of your self-image and where you've come from, the battles you fought, uh, the consequences that you've had to deal with from the decisions you've made, right? There's always that opportunity, always that point in time where you can make a new choice. And so that then began, you know, I call it the up and down. So dad had the ingredients of everything. And he had this dedication. He was driven. He had this passion. Um, and But the up and downs were as he was chasing the greener grass. And so what did that mean? Well, when you become number, you know, the top salesman out of 7,000, you get recruited. You know, other, other companies come in, other people, hey, come over here. You know, we'll offer you a lot of stuff. And so he would jump. Um, because he didn't have the wisdom or the maturity yet. And sometimes those companies folded and it didn't work out, right? Um, but that all changed in 1972. And that's when he became a, a, a Christian, a believer. Um, and now he had a spiritual purpose and kind of North Star, in addition to all this personal development uh, stuff that he'd been perfecting. And so that's where wisdom really came in. And so for my family, for me, my sisters, I'm almost 10 years younger than my closest sister. So I had three sisters and then me. And so that was 1972. So I was seven when dad became a born again believer. And my sister, Julie, uh, she moved out of the house when she was 18. And so I was kind of raised and brought up under a kind of a different type of, of um, parenting because there was a standard, there was a, there was a, uh, a game plan. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just try to be a good person. It was, Hey, you know what? Love God and love your neighbor. And it was, you know, the, the, the things that come out of scripture. And so I had that benefit. Uh, and it, you know what? There's a lot of people who have that benefit and they screw up. Right. I mean, it, it's all everybody's different. Uh, and there's other people have that benefit. And, you know, it's kind of a launching pad. But the point I tell people, the reason I tell that story is. You look at a couple 18 and 20 and they get married and you look at their history out of poverty, their parents, you know, their dads had passed away. They didn't you know, life was uncertain. It was the Great Depression. And yet there's this amazing life. I think that gives anybody hope, no matter what your circumstances have been, that you can start making good choices, good decisions uh, today to really go. Uh, so I've been, I've been blessed uh, because of that. So when I say I'm the proud son, it's because I, I watched that. I was a part of that. Uh, and yet dad told me, he said, son, I don't care what you do. You know, there wasn't any pressure to do a certain thing in life. He just said, whatever you do, do it with a hundred percent integrity and a hundred percent effort. Now that's, you know, that's the kind of wisdom and love and, and unconditional love that we want from our parents. Um, yeah. And if our parents don't give it to us, Almost always it's because it wasn't given to them. 
right? So, but there, everybody, I believe, you know, hopefully comes to that 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 decision point where, wait a second, just because it was that way doesn't mean it has to be that way because we can change. Because the, it's funny, you know, Tom, I, I laughed um, and spoke with my partner when I was listening to a lot of Zig stuff last year and I said, if there's anyone, because I'm not, I'm not religious, I've become incredibly spiritual. Uh, even though I was raised in a born-again uh, Christian family, my mum was a, um, a devout born-again Christian, and I, but unfortunately I had it sort of forced down my throat and I, and I rejected it at that point. But I said to my partner, Anna, I said, if anyone's going to ever convince me to become a Christian again, it'll be Zig Ziglar. Because of the, the, the power in which he's used and underpinned all of these, this wonderful this wonderful message that relates directly to a lot of this religious stuff, a lot of the Christian beliefs, rather, um, is undeniable, in my opinion. And and people get a little bit funny about religion at times and you know, uh, you know, what are you believing in? But I think the values that I've been able to take away coming from a place of love and abundance and, and you know, giving people what they want in order for me to get what I need, you know, like all of those amazing things have been really, really powerful and I've witnessed them firsthand. So I'm a big fan. But in terms of modern society, do you think that if we're able to get a lot more of that message to the next generation of kids that we can improve society as a whole yeah and, and right now um you know this is what i've seen okay so we've got a pandemic and i'll just i'll speak from the perspective of uh being a global citizen as well as uh, an american okay so globally and and i you know i tell i joke and i say hey my life's a webinar um in the first in the first in the first 30 days of the pandemic i did over 100 webinars wow i was doing five or six a day seven a day sometimes um and most of them i teach right i'm bringing uh the ziggler message and what we do but on the on a webinar platform there are people from all over the world I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, when I do uh, one of our big webinars, we'll have 30 countries on it. Wow. And, you know, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, Australia. Um, and it depends on what time of day we do it here. It depends on where it shows up in other places. But, you know, we have people getting up in the middle of the night. And so this is what I've seen on the, on the pandemic is the um, – I call it this, you know, you get locked down and all of these, all of the, the scales kind of fall off the eyes and the ears start to open up. And it's because people are at home going, Hey, wait a second. Uh, my identity was based on what I did and what I do and I can't do it anymore. So a lot of people lost what they were doing or, it radically changed how they did the same thing, right? You're now working from home. Uh, you know, there's different things. And so if your value and your identity is based on what you do, all of a sudden that's in jeopardy. Well, if what you do is in jeopardy, 
then how am I going to pay for the house and how am I going to buy food? And, and so now all of your stuff is in jeopardy, right? So if what you do and what you have is now, uh-oh, what's going to happen? Then all of a sudden people start asking that big question is, who am I and why am I here? Right. And so to me, this has been an incredibly, um, that's the silver lining is, is people are suddenly, instead of wasting their life, you know, working to pay the bills are suddenly coming back across and going, wait a second, nothing certain, you know? (laughs) So am I really doing, and this is what I say, am I really doing, in becoming who God created me to become. In other words, I believe every individual is unique and has gifts and talents hidden within. And there are certain things that make your heart sing. Uh, certain, th- And you have experiences and skills that you've developed and, and you've had, uh, you've got scars and burns from what life throws at you. And all of those things come together and create something uh, beautiful. I think it's the Japanese when they, when they hold up a beautiful vase that's maybe hundreds of years old, the beauty is in the wear on the vase, right? They, they have this concept that a perfect vase isn't what it's about. It's, it's the use and how it's served its purpose. Right. And so people are, are stepping into that. The other thing that's happening now uh, is in the U S especially, and it's going on around the world is this, this understanding that that socially and racially we've got a lot of work to do, right? Because what's gone on just isn't right. And so to me, it's very exciting because, um, you know, it's heartbreaking and exciting, heartbreaking because of what's happened, but exciting because people are getting together and going, wait a second, there must be a higher standard that we can all agree on and go towards. Okay. And so for me, this is what gets real exciting about it. If there's a higher standard, what is it? And who gets to decide? And so I believe in the law of contingency, which is, and I'll just break that down for you. The law of contingency says that Tom Ziegler is here because Zig and Gene Ziegler had me as a child. And they were on the earth because of their parents, right? And so we go all the way back in time until the beginning and every single thing that's here is because something came before us. And so then the question is, is what magic do you believe in? Do you believe in a creator who set this up or do you believe in the magic that something came from nothing? Because either one of them takes a great deal of faith. So if we, right. Um, and I'm a nerd, so don't let me go down that path. But uh, I read a book called The God Hypothesis, and it was put together by a uh, – so this is way off the track, but this is kind of fun. Uh, this guy was a physicist, and so he wanted to do all these mathematical formulas to figure out the probability of – is it more probable that there was a – uh, you know, an intelligent designer that created everything, or if it just happened by chance. And he actually did the probability of the Big Bang occurring. 
And uh, the number of it happening was one in infinity. <laughs> because it had to be exactly the perfect ex uh, power of explosion to create the universe that we now live in. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, hey, if you want to believe in a number between, you know, just one number out of infinity, that takes some faith, okay? Uh, and so what I'm saying is it takes faith. But the reason I'm excited is people are saying, well, there's got to be a higher standard that we can all agree on. And so what they're saying is there's got to be a moral law that we should all abide under. Well, if we say there's a moral law, then that means there needs to be a moral law giver which is to me, that's our creator. That's our, that's our higher power. And incidentally, dad was not a fan of religion either at all. He really? was a fan. Yeah. He was a fan of relationship. And so I believe, and there's evidence everywhere we were created for relationship. And so what we live in is a broken world with broken relationships. And we know it's not right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and so the, to me, the, it, you know, and I simplify things because I have to, to keep it in my head, but it's either it's either there's a higher power, a higher standard that says this is how we're supposed to have relationship, or we are the higher standard, which means that he who has the power gets to set the standard. And if you look at all the injustice in the world throughout history, whether it's the last 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, that's the problem is people in power set up systems that benefit themselves at the expense of other people. And a higher standard would say, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to love God. And Jesus said in the new Testament, love God with all your mind, heart, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. So how can you love your neighbor as yourself and set up a system that benefits you at the expense of your neighbor. It doesn't work. Uh, yeah. You can't. And so that's, that's why as tough as it is uh, to me, ultimately, you know, somebody has to acknowledge, wait a second, whoever's coming to the negotiating table, whatever that looks like, there's gotta be a standard that we have to submit to all of us. Right. Because my pride and my need for power and control is going to want to stack the deck in my favor. And that's the way the world works. Right. That's that's the that's the, the systems that that hold groups of people down or individuals down. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. So I don't know. We got very philosophical for a, a motivational, inspirational Ziegler show <laughs> podcast. No, I love it, Tom, and I think this is this is an important thing to bring up, and it's something I've been thinking about just in the last few days because of the, with regards to what I've been thinking about, it's the impact that my own life has had on me in terms of the feedback I've been getting from from people in my life in the last few years versus before I was able to, you know, deal with a lot of my demons and and I was very egotistical at times I was very caught up in my own shit and then when I when I was able to understand that I was going to get much better outcome by coming from a completely different angle what I what I firmly believe and this is a quite a utopian thing 
is that if we're able to impart a lot of these messages, messages from you, you know, ones you got from your mum, from your father, from Les Brown, from Tony Robbins, all these other these other thought leaders, and value the sanctity of not just marriage but the actual relationship and keep families together where you've got a, a strong male role model if you've got a heterosexual couple and, and a strong feminine model as well and then you've got that that uh, sanctity of family and and you get you get to observe your parents love each other and do you know do really great things and then you pick up those habits and then you then pass that on to the next generation that's missing in a lot of society because of the extremely high rates of, of divorce, which are at least 50%. And then you've got another however many percent of people that are living together that are absolutely miserable and imparting all of that onto their children as well. And so we are getting very deep here, Tom, but how, where do we start? Where do we start when we're trying to address what I'm just talking about right now? You know, here's here's a big one to me, um, and I'll I'll just tell some stories because um, stories are the best. So there's there's a thing called truth, right? And truth can't contradict itself. If it did, it wouldn't be truth. So my good friend, his name is Chris Dunham. He's one of our speakers. Uh, He's, he, he travels the world. He's an amazing guy from India. And he's, this is after 9-11. So, you know, on an airplane after 9-11, if you're from India, um, people are operating under fear. They see a guy who looks a little different. And Chris is, Chris is a Christian. He's also an evangelist. So when he would he would sit on the airplane, uh, he would get his Bible out, right? And he was just he, he did that anyway, but he kind of made it a point, really, as a hey, you know, don't worry about me, kind of a statement. Yeah, it's not the Quran, <laughs> right? And I'm not making a statement of that I'm just talking about hey, this is like a month after 9/11 happened. Mm. Everybody's like sensitive, yeah. yeah. So, so he, uh, he's sitting there and this guy and he's in first class. Okay. So Chris does a couple hundred thousand miles a year on air on airplanes. Um, so he's got top status. And so he's sitting there and this guy sits down or comes in next to him and looks at him and says, looks at his Bible and says, you're not one of those Christians, are you? <laughs> so, so Chris just looks up and he says, well, I don't know what you mean by one of those Christians, but I'm a Christian. And so then the guy puts his bag up and everything and sits down. And, and Chris says about five minutes later, the guy looks at him and says, well, I'm an attorney. And I don't believe there are any absolutes. And Chris says, are you absolutely sure? Because that's in, in logic and in, that's called an argument to commit suicide. 
saying there are no absolutes is an absolute, right? And, and, and so how do we have a discussion about this? I was, I was uh, speaking in Sydney <clears throat> and uh, this was, this was fun. You know, we had a, had a great day, full on workshop and we had these product packages and it was all the CDs and books and, and uh, DVDs of all the Ziegler content. And we'd shipped a whole bunch over because it's expensive to get it there. And so we had these big packages. And the package was over 500 US. And we sold a bunch of them. And I'm signing books at the end and everything. And uh, when, I, when I speak, especially in other countries, I will ask the audience a question. I'll say, hey, do you, do you want to know 70% of the reason for Zig Ziglar's success or do you want to know 100%? How many want 100%? Raise your hand. Well, 100%, right? Everybody wants to know. And I'll say, well, look, I'm going to tell you up front that faith is important to your success. And so I'm going to share with you some of that that I believe and that Zig Ziglar believes. But that's because you asked for it. You want to know 100%, right? So at the end, we're, we're uh, and of course, when I go to Australia, the hosts say, you know, don't talk politics and don't talk religion, right? I mean, that's just like, you just don't do it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And then I do what I do. Um, so during the day, you know, and it's, it's definitely 99% business, right? But whenever there's a spiritual concept or, or perspective or somebody asks me a question, I'm tell them, you know, this is what I believe. So this guy at the end comes up and he's sharp business guy. I mean, dressed to the T, you know, he's probably out earning me 10 to one. <laughs> and he says, he says, wow, I really enjoyed the day. And he goes, but I just have a question. I'm an atheist, and wouldn't you do more business if you just left faith completely out of it? Right? I mean, what a great question. And I started nodding in my head, and he looks down, and, and he's got two giant bags of our stuff. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, well it didn't affect you. And he started laughing. He goes, yeah, I guess you're right. And I said, look, I think it's how you present it. I'm not here to condemn anyone. I want you to want what I have. Right. And so that's the problem with religion is it gets used as a hammer rules and regulations. It's a, it's not that it's, 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 it's spiritual. It's relationship. And, and so that's how we've always approached it. And that allows us to go and talk anywhere. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this is one of my, uh, you know, I'm always working on mindset. I know you work on, you, you have to work on mindset. Okay. So whenever I say something or somebody comes at me, and I know it's happened to you because it's happened to all of us. We're, we're humans. If somebody attacks you, berates you, uh, goes after you, trolls you, calls you names, uh, whatever, 
my immediate thought is this. Would a secure person do that? No. That's my first question. So ask yourself when you're being attacked by someone, would a secure person do that? And the answer is no. And so immediately what happens internally is it's not about you. It's about something that's gone on in their past, a hurt, a wound, uh, something that they're protecting. And so that keeps me from ever getting my, my blood pressure up because it's not personal, right? And so now I can love them. And I'm, a, I'm not a fan of tolerance at all. I don't believe in tolerance. Yeah, your eyebrows went up. So I'll prove it to you. Uh, do you want your friends and your kids to tolerate you or do you want them to love you? I want them to love me. Exactly. And the words that I think hijacked is a great term here because I think the new spiritual value is tolerance. And what it's done is tried to replace love. You see, tolerance is risk-free. If you tolerate people and you see them heading for a cliff, you just wave as they walk off the cliff. Love requires risk. If somebody you love is heading for the cliff, you might stand in front of them and risk the relationship to warn them about what's going to happen if they keep going down the path. And so when I, when I speak, if that subject ever comes up, I'll just say, hey, look, whether you believe in God or not, whether you're conservative or liberal, uh, whatever lifestyle you lead, or even if you're not a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, is it okay if I just love you rather than tolerate you? You know what? I haven't found anybody who's like, don't love me. <laughs> you know? Who says that? I know. And so if I love you just the way you are, guess what else? When you love somebody, it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say or do. So I love people from all walks of life. And guess what? We, we disagree on a bunch of stuff. But that's what I'm, that's what I believe I'm commanded. Well, it, it's really great, Tommy, because you've, you've rephrased it in a way that's allowed me to, to understand because I've, I've been doing some of these things, like almost deliberately polarizing the people in my, in my network whether it be family and friends in a way that will allow the, the right people to come into my life and, and the not right people to exit. And, and when you free up some of that space with the people that aren't right, you allow more high quality, good people into your life. And it's, again, it's not that the other people are bad. They're just not necessarily good for you. And and I think the the, the fear of, losing that family member or that friendship that might be really dysfunctional is too much for some people and they can never truly get that fulfillment of being free and being able to love without any you know secondary agreement so i love how you describe that it's a really really powerful message for anyone listening and, I, and myself included so thank you yeah. for sharing that and you 
you can't really love someone else until you love yourself. One of my favorite quotes from dad was this. Um, the number one reason for a poor self-image is the lack of unconditional love. We live in a conditional society. It's a performance-based world. You know, we're valued on what we produce. And what we look for from our parents is unconditional love. Hey, I love you because you're mine. Right? And as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and as a believer, that's what I believe. I'm, I'm loved unconditionally. Well, if you don't love yourself unconditionally and have the capacity to forgive yourself for your screw-ups, because we all have them, how are you going to go do that with somebody else? Well, I, I don't think you can because that's what I struggle with for an awfully long time, Tom. And I, and for for people listening, what are some what are some techniques that they can that they can use to start that self love process? You know, um, in the in the book Choose to Win, I talk about we are mental, spiritual, and physical, and so those are the and I do a sequence, okay. So we have seven areas of life, mental, spiritual, physical, family, financial, personal, and career. And so anything you want to accomplish is going to fall into one of those seven areas. But I do the sequence on purpose because people will say, well, where do I start? You know, which one is the most important? And usually people will agree that you've got to start with one of these three. Our, our mental, our mindset, you know, the things that we believe about ourselves, our spiritual, which to me is our character qualities, you know, love, kindness, uh, faith, hard work, desire, discipline, you know, generosity, compassion, all of these qualities that make us up. And then there's the physical, which is kind of the, the, the level of, of our body's ability to operate, right? So physical is a combination of the right sleep, the right food, the right movement, how we handle stress. And a lot of people, they'll start with the physical. Hey, let's do the physical first. And you know what? I'm not going to argue against that because if I can start to get my body in better shape, that gives me more mental clarity. It gives me more fuel, more energy. It, it raises the lid. It allows me to do everything else better. The problem with the physical is the first point is people join the gym in January and they quit in February, even after they've gotten results. So their body has changed, but their, but their thinking hasn't. And then there's other people who will say, no, it's all spiritual. we got to start with the spiritual. And so they'll start working on these qualities, which is just awesome. And I'm not going to say don't start there. But what I chose to start with is the mental. You see, I believe we have a choice as to what we feed our mind. I have a quote, what you feed your mind determines your appetite. And so to me, the number one thing that we can do is to choose what goes into our mind, what we read, what we listen to. This is the number one lesson I learned from my dad, uh, who we associate with. And the more that we put into our mind 
of the right things, then the better we're going to be. And so what do you put into your mind? Well, you put in the spiritual, right? What kind of, if, if our life, you know, what's our rep, a good way to look at this, what's our reputation? What do people say about us behind our back? What do we want them to say? Well, if we write down all the things we want people to say about us behind our back, then what can I put into my mind? What's the, what is the habit that I can form to put that into my mind to where the automatic fruit of my life is that reputation? And so the first, the, the, the long answer to your short question is, how do we get there? We choose to put in the right information, right? And so that's where you've got to dig, right? That's where you've got to go in and say, well, why do I have value and, and who am I? And, and so you start reading and you put that in. So I, I was in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I said this quote, what you feed your mind determines your appetite. And this lady jumps up in the back of the room and she goes, that's just like NASCAR. <laughs> and I'm like, NASCAR, I, you know, who was thinking car racing at that point? I said, explain what you mean. And she said, well, you go around the track at 185 miles an hour. Okay. And at that speed, your eyes have to look where you want the car to go. At that speed, if you look at the wall, like if the driver glances at the wall, the hands make an involuntary micro movement to follow the eyes and you hit the wall. I mean, that's the level of concentration it takes at that speed is you got to look at where you want the car to go and think about our life. Okay. We wake up in the morning and we say this, oh, when I see so-and-so, I better not say that. And I better not eat the cheesecake and I better not sit on the couch all day. And so what have we just told ourselves? <laughs> well, when we meet that person, we're going to tell them off and we're going to eat the cheesecake and we're going to sit on the couch all day. Right? So what you feed your mind determines your appetite. You're going to want more of that. What we should have told ourselves was, Oh, I love kale. Kale, 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 kale. Kale is my favorite food. Right? Because then you start wanting it. And when I meet so-and-so, man, I'm going to thank them for, for helping to grow me as a person. And you know what? I'm going to get up five or 10 minutes every hour. I'm, I'm going to get some, I'm take a quick walk. I'm going to get some water. I'm, and so that's what we feed our mind because where do we want to go? We want to have a tree of life that produces the fruit that we're proud of. And so when we are trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we love ourselves? Well, guess what? You gotta, you've got to read. Dad said this, you are what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. And you can change what you are and you can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. The last, this is a story that dad told. That's a great example. 50 years ago, maybe a little longer than that now, <clears throat> his speaking career was just starting and he wasn't getting paid and he gets invited to go speak and he has to drive a long distance to this thing. He gets to that community and he can't find it where he's supposed to go. So he stops and he gets directions. He goes into a little, a little store and the guy there has the, the name tag on. He's from the local area. And he says, here's the address. Do you know where it is? 
And the guy says, yeah. And dad says, will you write the directions down word for word so I can get there? So the guy writes the directions down word for word. Dad gets back in his car. He follows the directions to the T. And an hour later, he's 30 miles further from where he needed to be. He was given the bad directions. Was it his fault? He asked a local guy, seemed to know what he was talking about, wrote down directions exactly. No, it wasn't his fault. So now he's in his car and he's got two choices. He could say, oh, no, my life is over. My speaking career is done. My break was going to happen at this event. That My reputation is going to be ruined because I didn't show. Or he could find the next place that he could to get new directions and get there as fast as he could. So that's what he did. Okay, so all of us, if you're listening to this, if you don't like where you are in life, could it be that you were given the wrong directions? And I guarantee you that the probability of that is like close to 100 percent. So the place to start is to forgive yourself because you had nothing to do with it. But now you have a responsibility, and that's to go and get the right directions. And that's, I mean, Laban, from what I know of you, that's what's happened to you. That's what happens to all of us, right, is we get bad directions. It's exactly what happened. And now I have, now that I've, and I'm not saying that I've nailed it, so I'm far from it, but I'm in a damn sight better place than I was this time a few years ago. I now feel that I've been given enough of those directions for me to then impart that into other people that might be misguided or misdirected. Do you feel that that's happened to you? Oh, absolutely. And here's a, here's a thought tool. You know, imagine that we're, at the, we're in the midpoint, Okay. When we make a good choice, we elevate, and that opens up more good choices. When we make a bad choice, we kind of go down, and that opens up lesser good choices and more bad choices. So every bad choice we make, there's more doors that open to more bad choices. You know, it's like if one drink is good, two will be better. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like it just leads. Now, here's so that's the way life works. When we start when we start honing in on the right directions and we're constantly looking for that, our ability to discern what's good and what's not gets better and better. Right. So absolutely it falls in. But here's the good thing. And you could have made a hundred bad decisions in a row, but you can change your whole life with just this one concept. I'm going to make my next decision a good one. I'm going to make a decision that's going to take me where I want to go. And this was, this is a great clarifying question. Is what I'm about to do, is that going to take me closer to or further from my goal, my dream, or my aspiration. And you see, here's the crux to the problem, is a lot of people don't have goals, dreams, and aspirations. 
right? If you're coasting and life's unfair and you're never going to get what you want, you've given up, then what difference does it make? And so that's where we've got to bring in hope, right? Because if you have no hope, you won't try. So it starts with hope. Got to show somebody how, hey, wait, your life can matter. You can, you can achieve things you can't even imagine. Okay, I believe it. So what do I do next? We make one good decision, followed by another one, followed by another one. It's powerful stuff. Tom and I, I, I can't agree with you more. It's, it's no coincidence that my, and I've been very public about this as well, um, I, I need to add up all the, the books between Audible and Kindle in the hard copy, but I, it must be close to three three fifty in the last four years. That excludes all the podcasts. It excludes all the other interviews and stuff that I've taken and the other content that we consume. And that, you know, that little snippet from there, that little bit from there, and, you know, like, I don't know where they all tie in, but they are having a profound effect on my life. And little things like listening to one of your dad's tapes, you know, I'm, I'm a runner. I'm a, I'm a distance runner now. I run ultramarathons, in fact like 60 miles, 100 Ks or whatever. And there's two people that have inspired me to run. One was David Goggins, who's yeah. my leader, and the other one's your father, who I understand was a, a, a really great runner, even in his, like, 50s. Or did I just hear that somewhere? No. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a... Um... Dr. Kenneth Cooper, who wrote The Aerobics Way, uh, he was the doctor in the U.S. who really put running on the map as far as health and especially heart health. Uh, they're out of Dallas. And so that was dad's doctor. And so dad was, you know, out of shape, overweight. He goes down, he gets all checked out <clears throat> and he starts running. And dad was a pragmatist. So when he ran, uh, it was to fuel everything else in his life that he wanted to do. So, in, in, you know, he, it was hard and it was painful. He didn't like it at first. And then one day he started enjoying it. But dad was super, super competitive. And so every year he would go into the Cooper Clinic for the checkup and they would do this thing called the treadmill test. And that's where they hook you up and they measure your heart and your oxygen levels and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, they can, they can tell what kind of shape you're in by how long you stay on the treadmill. And so dad, uh, set a, a kind of a personal best, uh, at the time and Rogers and dad and Roger Staubach, Roger Staubach was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, probably one of the most famous, Cowboys to ever play. Uh, Roger was also a member there. And of course, uh, Roger is, I guess he's probably 20 or 25 years younger than dad. So just after he retired from football and he's an athlete, <clears throat> he goes in and does the treadmill test and says to Dr. Cooper, how'd I do? And he said, well, you did fantastic, but not as good as Zig Ziglar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. so dad and roger kind of had this this thing going uh but dad just had a, a endurance um 
even though he didn't run long distance, he wasn't an ultra marathon or anything. He never ran a marathon. He never ran a half marathon. Uh, but his consistency was crazy. So he would run all the time. Uh, and then later on, Dr. Cooper changed his, his kind of philosophy a little bit. He felt like for, for everybody, but uh, athletes uh, who needed to run that fast walking was actually a better program for you over time, just because of the, uh, you don't do the physical damage to your body. Uh, but that was dad's, that was dad's running story. Well, we've got a guy coming on the show. We're recording next month by the name of professor Tim Noakes, who I don't know if you've heard that name. He's, he was born in Zimbabwe, but he's lived in South Africa most of his life. He wrote the book, the law of running, which was the very first uh, distance marathon or ultra marathon book, I think would have been in the seventies. And he promoted a high carbohydrate load for running because there is, you know, particularly with ultra running, there's, there's significant impact on the body. And there was, uh, once after he released the book, there was quite a few deaths that had occurred from runners that were consuming too much water. And I forget the um, type of hyper something, right? And... Oh, we still got you there, Tom? Oh, we still there. You're bringing it up, but keep going. It's all right, my brother can edit it out. You back? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah, so there was... Um, yeah, I got you now. I think it's okay. Don't know what's going on there. We are across the other side of the planet. <laughs> it's still a bit bitsy. Still choppy. I tell you what, it started right at the story of the author who wrote the book. Um, oh, Tim, Professor Tim Noakes. Yeah. So if you say Professor Tim Noakes again, it's you could probably tell that story again. And yeah. Oh, I like. It sounds like it's going a bit in there. So yeah. Yeah, there's a gentleman coming on the show, Professor Tim Noakes, who wrote the book, The Law of Running, L-O-R-E. And it was, you know, one of the very first ultra-distance books with marathons and ultra-marathons and nutritional strategies and a bunch of other things. And it was a very high-carbohydrate-focused diet, which is what, you know, him and many other doctors promoted as well, certainly the doctor that was attending to your father. And he, he, there was a bunch of deaths from people consuming way too much water when they were running. And it, they would dilute the sodium and they'd have heart attacks. It's a bunch of other things, you know, crazy stuff happening. And not that there was any particular blame to what he wrote, but because he realised that what he was promoting was actually incorrect, he rewrote the book many years later and fell on his sword. And it's a really great example of, someone being incredibly humble and, and realizing they're wrong. And, you know, you know, the advice to not run and fast walk uh, might, you know, might be a handy thing to do, but the, that cathartic response that I get from running, I can identify what your father would have experienced as well. Cause it's kind of my meditation. And I, I don't know, have you picked up the running gene? I know you're, you were a really great golfer at one point in your life you were going to turn pro at one point i think yes so not a runner 
we have an elliptical machine at our house and I do that. Yeah. Uh, a little bit easier on my knees. Uh, and I, and, and of course I enjoy walking. Have you ever read the book born to run? That's the book that uh, inspired me to go and buy my Vibram toe shoes. <laughs> yes, me too. Did you? <laughs> and then I tore up my calf, like, because <laughs> I was running. And so I wore them for like three months to break them in and to get used to that and everything. And then I went to the park and I started running on the, on the grass, right? Because I didn't want the, and my, I, I guess 45 years of, of uh, being on cushioned soles, <laughs> three months wasn't enough time. <laughs> to... Yeah, I love that book. Anyway. It's a great book. The um, I'll tell you a, 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 tr a truth that you might not want to hear, and I had to learn it myself. Uh, we're too heavy at the current weight to to do any kind of longer distance in them. Um without sustaining that calf, because I'm actually managing a calf injury at the moment. It's the first injury I've had in two years uh, after trying to do two, I did two six mile runs within three days in these minimalism shoes, which are the same sole width as the Vibram toe shoes. The toe shoes I find take me way longer to put on than these ones. Yeah, They're, they're a mural shoe with the Vibram sole, but uh, it killed me. It killed me. And like, I'm about, well, at my leanest, has got down to about 80 kilos, five foot eight. It's still too heavy. So whatever that is in pounds, it must be about 170, 160 pounds or something. But anyway, they are great. But, yeah, longer distance, they, they are brutal on the legs. But one thing I was going to ask you, Tom, just a slight change of topic, where do you find your inspiration outside of the Ziggler world these days? Who are your key people that you get? amazing information from uh well i'm like you i'm doing an audio book uh probably three or four a month uh i listen to a number of podcasts um i listen to freakonomics that's that's just a great general you know why things are the way they are kind of world um uh, input uh, one of my mentors, his name is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And so he's just, the wisdom that comes from him is incredible as, as a rabbi. Uh, a few years ago, I kind of dug into Hebrew and started studying the original meaning of words and things like that. Uh, and so there's a lot of insight uh, that, I've, that I've gained from that. Uh, Dave Ramsey, uh, Dan Miller, you know, when I was reading or when I was writing the book Choose to Win, which is about habits, uh, I didn't read any books on habits for two or three years uh, while I was writing it because I didn't want other people's, you know, insights or whatever to kind of get conflicted. And so when I wrote it and then I go and read these other books that came out around the same time or before even, I'm like, wow, mine must be right because we agree. <laughs> so, so a lot, you know, the, when a lot of books agree on something, then that usually tells you that there's a solid foundation. 
And so that's what I do. And of course, uh, you know, Bob Bodine is one of my favorite. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's written a couple of books as well and uh, the Bible. So those are the mainstays. Um, I try to keep current on my reading, um, but I don't feel any obligation to finish a book. So if, if I get into something, um, I did read, uh, I got David Goggins. Yeah, it can't hurt me. Um, and man, what an amazing story. And I'll just, I'll just tell you a conflict that I have. Um, I, I was taught from, from (laughs) the youngest age that our words are unbelievably powerful in how they shape what we do in our worldview. Um, and so when I hear a lot of language, uh, it's, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance starts going off in my head because the way we frame our words, I think either limits us or, you know, or takes the lid off. Right. And, and so, uh, the message was spot on and I'm like, well, this is a, if we're going to battle, man, I'm, he's like my first pick. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I give a lot of, I give a lot of grace, but I really had to like have some mental talks with myself as I was watching it uh, or listening to it. Um, and, and this is a story on profanity that, that dad told me, uh, I was probably 25 or 26, been working in the business a few years. Dad was invited to speak for a huge company, a big oil and gas company. And there's like going to be a thousand people there. And we were back in the green room. And so we're behind the stage and the executives of this oil and gas company are back there. So this is 30 years ago. And these guys are former military uh, oil patch uh, kind of born, you know, raised up out of there and they are cussing like I've never, I'd never heard before. Right. And it's just the culture, right. It's just how they were brought up. And, uh, so dad and I got to the side for a second and I looked at him because I'd never been exposed to that. Okay. And I go, dad, uh, what's up with their, their cussing? And he said two things. He said, son, the first thing is this. Don't think for a second that their language has anything to do with their intelligence. <laughs> I mean, look at what they built. This is amazing. And then he kind of had a little sad look on his face and he said, but son, isn't it a shame that they're going to use words that are going to offend some people? that's going to turn them off to what could be a great opportunity. And so that was dad's view of it. Uh, and, and, you know, Ireland is one of my favorite countries in the world. I've got some good Irish friends and, you know, cussing over there, it's like a sport, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, so every, so every culture is different. Uh, but I just never will forget, you know, dad's kind of view of it. Why would you ever use words that could potentially eliminate part of the audience. Well, you'll be pleased to know, Tom, I've stopped, I've not stopped, but I've slowed down and reduced my, my profanity. 
since listening to your father's tapes. And <laughs> and I remember that that statement. And the interesting thing about David Goggins, I there's no denying how extraordinary he is. And I would absolutely say this to his face, and I hope one day I get a chance to meet him and thank him for his inspiration because he's had, he's had a profound effect on my life. But I think that he's still got a ways to go in his healing. And I think if he ever gets to that point where he can truly, I don't know whether he needs to either love himself or truly let go of all of those things, right? And, and this is just in a thought piece and opinion. Then, then, then and only then I think he can probably will want to reduce down the, the, the language that he uses. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, um, you know, there's definitely, you know, dad in his early childhood, he was 12 and he was invited to go to go swimming at the Yazoo City Country Club by a friend. And so you're 12 years old, it's Mississippi, it's 100 degrees outside. He gets the swimming pool and his friend is a member. Okay, so dad, we learned recently that, that – uh, his family was like considered this. They were the second poorest family in Yazoo city. So you're talking a poor, poor state, a poor, poor little community and their family is like the poorest of the poor. Right. Cause single mom, all that. So dad's there at the swimming pool. So he's an outsider, right? So he's like the poorest kid at the country club and his buddy Whose, whose families are members invited him and his buddy's not there yet. So dad can't help it. He gets into the swimming pool. Now the rule was, is if you're not a member, you can't get into the pool until the member's there. And so dad gets into the pool. And then one of the other members saw that, knew who he was, knew that he was meeting his buddy came over, grabbed him by the neck, pulled him out of the pool, and threw him out of the country club. So if you're 12 years old, that's a humiliating thing. And dad made a vow that day that he would never set foot again at that country club. And that someday he would have a swimming pool bigger than the swimming pool at the Yazoo City Country Club. It's so... When we moved to Dallas, uh, he built that pool. And it was the arrow, you probably heard on the tapes, it's the arrow-shaped pool. And it was 48 feet long, three feet longer than the Yazoo City Country Club. So here's the thing. You know, we all, in, in David's story, I mean, what a, what a horrific uh, childhood to witness and to grow through. And we can take those horrific things that happened to us and we can use it as fuel to accomplish amazing things. The problem is, is that if it begins to dominate our belief structure to where we have to rely on the negative to propel ourselves forward, rather than like, I think what you're alluding to is we need to, we need to drop all the baggage. So here's a, here's a thought tool for you. Imagine two horses, they're genetically the same, they're identical twins, same training, same food, same weight, and there's two identical jockeys, and they're going to they're gonna race. 
And the only difference in the two is one of them's carrying a hundred pound bag. Which, which horse do you bet on? Yeah. Right. You bet on the one who doesn't have the extra weight. Well, in, in success and personal development and growth, that's what's going on is we all have garbage. We've all got extra weight in our mind. And until we drop it, we're not going to hit the speed that we were designed to hit. And so, so it's not that, and, and I'm a uh, Dr. Carolyn Leaf. I don't know if you've ever read her. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, psychiatrist. Uh, she does a lot on our mind and how to uh, engage our mind. Neuroscience. Uh, just Carolyn definitely. Lee, is it? Carolyn Leaf. Leaf. L- okay. L-E-A-F. Amazing. And she talks about, um, so this is a spiritual concept and it's around neuroscience. There's a scripture that says we need to constantly renew our mind. And basically, uh, physiologically, we wake up every day with millions of new brain cells. And we have the choice is to tell them what to do. Right? So we can renew our mind. That's why we put our good stuff in. Now, if, if you have a horrific, you know, traumatic event in your life, and they have a brain scan on you, it'll show in your brain all the things that are happening. Okay? If you have a memory, if you go back and memorize, you know, memory, go back into your memory and relive that memory-wise, the brain scan will show exactly the same. So your your brain doesn't even know that it, you can't tell if it just happened or if it happened 30 years ago. But here's what's amazing is we can reform that memory. We can literally change that memory to where the brain scans actually change. So if you have a traumatic event in your life and it, and it triggers you and it takes you into lockdown and it creates all these anxiety and emotions, you can literally train your brain to go back into that memory and recreate it. For example, um, let's just use dad's swimming pool example. He was yanked out of there and humiliated in front of all the people of status in his community. So he could go back into that. You can go back in that memory and say, well, what did I learn? I learned compassion, man. Okay. So what, how am I going to use that compassion? And what literally happens is your brain physiologically, the dendrites that get built starts, starts erasing and replacing that negative memory with what I've learned out of. And so that's why they say, you know, if you learned, you didn't really fail. And so anytime we have a, quote, failure, we've really got to be intentional about saying, okay, what led up to it? Uh, What happened? What did I learn? How can I apply what I learned? And then we start focusing our attention on what I learned and what I apply. And if we do that consistently, then the memory actually changes. And when we go back to that place, it's not the traumatic experience anymore. It's actually, oh, okay, this is how I can use it. And that's how, that's how people have done. And so we all are pretty good at it in certain areas of our life, right? And so like I might be detached or I might not have, 
you know, working out. So when I was a kid, I had bad workout experiences. I don't like it, but it's not like an emotional pillar in my life. And so a good trainer would say, hey, you know, what did you learn? Well, I learned that I have a bad back. Okay, well, let's do this instead. Oh, okay. And so I'm recreating that. And now I really started to enjoy working out again. And I've changed literally my brain structure, my memory about the bad experience I had with working out by replacing it with a good one. So some of us find it pretty easy in certain areas of our life. But in other areas of our life, it's like, you know, don't go there. <laughs> That's a dark place. Well, let me tell you, you can go to that dark place and recreate. It's harder and you might need some help, but you can do it. Well, that's what I've focused on in the last five years, Tom. I've made a point of going to those dark places because when I when I got access to a counsellor, a gambling counsellor, one of the first sessions she spoke about the, the, the coping mechanisms that children develop as a result of growing up in dysfunction. And, you know, after doing a bunch of other further reading, I learned that the, the effect that trauma has on children's brains whether it be explosions in Syria or sexual abuse, a lot of the times they're very, very similar and that you can't diminish your own experience if it wasn't too too bad. And so now I look at all of these things that happen, now I understand them. I've been able to replace a lot of those negative connotations with positivity as, as a gift. And like Goggins, they're my fuel now, right? And I, I'm very comfortable talking about them with, with anyone that's keen to listen. And I think for me, talking about them has been part of that catharsis. And I think the more the more comfortable I've become with it, the, the more I heal. And when I, you know, I've spoken about this on some of the other shows that I've done. I, I would inexplicably burst into tears on on my runs for the first year when I got to about the 10, uh, eight mile mark, 13 or 14 Ks. Just but no tears of joy. It doesn't happen anymore. And I really feel like the sense of calmness has sort of come over me in the last year or two. And uh, I don't even think about that stuff anymore. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Good stuff. So, Tom, I'm, I'm conscious that you are one busy man and you've got a lot, lot going at the moment. So I don't want to hold you up for much longer. But before we go, I'd love for you to finish on your favorite story that you'd like to tell? Oh, I've already told a couple of them. Uh, I'll, I'll, um, it can be about I'll, anything. You, your dad, your mum. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about a plane trip I took with dad. Um, so this is a key, okay? So this is one of the, to me, one of the most foundational success principles there is. We were flying out to California and dad was going to give a speech. And we were, we get on the plane and dad had a routine and his, his routine was really simple. He had this folder with his, his, his itinerary, his notes, the, the stuff he was going to work on for his speech. He'd pull that folder out and he'd put it in this in, right next to him in the seat. And the flight, so we were he was we were first class. So the flight attendant comes over and Dad looks at the flight attendant and says, "Hey, my seat belt's on. I don't need anything to drink. 
uh, and I'm going to take a nap. So, you know, don't wake me up. So he puts the shade or he, you know, he doesn't put the shade down, but he's just there in the seat and he's like asleep. So the plane's boarding and dad's sound asleep. I mean, just amazing, right? So here's a guy who's done this a thousand times. So we taxi, dad's sound asleep. We take off, dad is sound asleep. Then the wheels kind of roll under the plane, you know, that sound. And he wakes up and he wipes his eyes. He puts his glasses on. He puts his tray table down. He pulls out the folder and he starts working. And so I knew the answer to this, but I wanted to hear him say it again. And I said, dad, what are you working on? He said, well, I'm working on my speech for tomorrow. And I said, Dad, you've given the version of that speech a thousand times. Why are you working on your speech for tomorrow? So he would just, as a note, every talk he gave at least three hours of preparation, even if it was 95% the same talk he'd done a thousand times, right? It didn't matter. Okay, so why are you doing it? So here are the two reasons why he was doing this. He said, number one is... It's the first time some people in that room will have ever heard me. I've got to be the best I've ever been. And so this is the principle of consistency. He was always sharpening the ax. He was always preparing. He was being super, super consistent because his goal was that whatever speech he gave, if it was the last speech he ever gave, it would be the best one he ever gave. Because you don't know when your last one is, right? That was his his belief. And, and so his, his motivation was, if I can just reach one extra person to make a decision, to make a choice, to do something different, that could change the trajectory of their life and their family's life. And who knows what the legacy is going to look like. So that was his thing. So that was consistency. And then he looked at me and he said, he said, and yeah, and two weeks ago, I met with the the VP of sales, the VP of marketing, and the CEO of this company. And I'm, I'm coming in to, to speak at their big conference around their sales. They're going to have recognition and awards. And they got a theme for this year. And their theme, and he, and he gave me the words that were in the theme. And he said, I need to, I need to run those, put those words into my speech, right? Because I need to tailor it to this group. And, and then he said, I was reading in, in the newspaper and a magazine a couple of weeks ago as well about things that are impacting their industry. And so I'm going to add that in. And I said, why is that? And he said, because there's going to be somebody in that room who recognizes that I took a little bit of extra time just to make it about the group in front of me. And maybe that's what inspires them to go a little bit deeper, to latch on to something that I say. And so I call that persistency. So consistency simply means, and so dad's, his number one key to success was character and integrity. His number two key to success was persistent consistency. Consistency says you do it every day as often as necessary. You know, that's the preparation. That's, that's working out five days a week. Persistency means that whenever you do it, you take it up a notch. You do just a little bit extra. You know, it could be that you quicken your pace a little bit. It could be that you go a little bit further distance. It could be that you work on your body posture when you're running. 
I mean, it, but whatever it is, every time you do it, you try to raise your game just a little bit. And if you want a successful life and a successful career, that's all you got to remember is make character and integrity the foundation on which you make all your decisions and build all your, your relationships. And then whatever you do, do it with PC, persistent consistency. Love that, Tom. Your book, Born to Win, is available everywhere, I'm assuming. Ziggler.com for the coaching, the mentoring, the speaking. You are doing your father incredibly, incredibly proud, and we are so blessed to have you on the, the show today. Tom Ziggler. Thank you so much for having me. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.